You're listening to Culture Matters, a podcast of the Village Church. This is Adam Griffin, and I'm joined as usual by Adam Hawkins. Hello. And today with our good friend, Kyle Worley. Hello. On today's episode, we are going to be joined by theologian N.T. Wright. We're going to be talking about the resurrection. We're going to be talking about what's going on right now in culture. We're going to talk about how the resurrection affects culture in general. And we're going to talk about a lot more as far as the ramifications of what Jesus Christ coming back from the dead has to do with us in our daily work and uh, as we look at the world. Why are you guys excited N.T. Wright is on the show today? Oh, wow. I mean, there could be a hundred reasons here. I mean, N.T. Wright is arguably one of the greatest living theologians and will probably go down in history as one of the greatest theologians of the 20th and 21st century. Is that because of his original thought? Is that because of the amount of work he's done? What's so great about N.T. Wright? Probably yes to both of those questions. So he's made some significant unique contributions around the topic of the resurrection in particular, but he has also made unique contributions around Pauline studies and theology, uh, the doctrine of justification. He has uh, the work that he's done, the scope of his work. It's not just been unique and significant. It's been broad and vast. He's written both to an academic and a lay audience. In many ways, he kind of is like a C.S. Lewis of our day. He's been able to engage the highest level of ideas and has wide academic respect, but he's also able to communicate love to bring a lot of those really profound ideas to bear on the lives of people that would have a hard time engaging with 500-page books. I love that. Adam, he's kind of a hero of yours. Well, I'll just say this. I am, I'm nervous because for all the reasons Kyle just said. But I, the, the one part I would add, and, and Kyle alluded to it, is just part of, part of his brilliance is not that he's just an academic. Mm-hmm. Um, he is pastoral. Yeah. He is. Um, and he's been a pastor for many years. And so his ability to sort of talk to uh, the church layman, his ability to talk to those who, who are unchurched, and his ability to talk to um, the, the student and the academic, uh, they're really unmatched. And so I'm excited for the podcast. Um, the, the insight he's going to provide, the way he will be able to c- communicate the story um, of Easter, of this season that we're yeah. in, uh, will will probably be for the listeners at the Village Church who don't know them will probably be different than they're normally uh, than they normally hear the story. Um, not not in its facts, but in the way he is able to cast such a beautiful vision of what it means for us to live out um, this 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 uh, this this thing we believe this resurrection that we believe that's good now what one, one of you told me that like uh, of all the things he's written he's also written kind of more summative easy to access kind of works what are those somebody explain that for the person who's going hey I'm never going to read a thousand page book but what has N.T. Wright contributed that I might be able to access that's a great question so he has a few books one that's probably the most relevant relevant for the season that we're in right now is a book called Surprised by Hope where he takes the thousands of pages he's written on the resurrection and he condenses it down to about 200 pages that are deeply applicable, practical, and really at kind of an eighth grade reading level. And so it's an incredibly profound book, but it's very small compared to the vastness of his work on the topic. Simply Christian and Simply Good News are two other kind of summations of his work where he's talking about the Christian life and then the gospel story throughout all of scripture. And then actually he has a website that you can go to and visit. It's called ntwriteonline.org. Some of the courses they offer on there are things 
like a study of the book of Philemon. He has a three-part class, online class, that you can take on Paul and the letter to the Romans. He has one on simply good news, simply Jesus, worldviews, the Bible, and the believer, Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians. So that would be a really great step for somebody looking to engage with his thought online or maybe doesn't respond to a book format very well. Man, that's so great. Well, I'm really excited for you guys listening to this, for you guys to hear from N.T. Wright today. He has a ton to offer us. So without further ado, we'll get right to it. We're here with Dr. N.T. Wright. Dr. Wright is one of the, I'm not exaggerating here, one of the leading New Testament theologians in the world and a retired bishop of the Anglican Church. He currently serves as a professor of New Testament and early Christianity at St. Andrews in Scotland. Dr. Wright has authored way too many books and commentaries to name, but some of those include Surprised by Hope, Simply Christian, Simply Good News, and a number of prominent works dealing with Pauline theology. Welcome to the show, Dr. Wright. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. Yes, uh, a little busy, but that's normal. <laughs> that's good. I'm sure you are. Way, we were trying to make the best use of this time. We are so grateful to have you with us. We'd love to just talk about the fact that it's Easter season. You've written and are so passionate about the resurrection. And now reflecting upon Easter, could you talk to us just a little bit about it, just a kind of a general view for the, the common man viewer or listener who has not maybe experienced or read some of your books? Uh, talk to us a little bit about Jesus Christ's resurrection, why it's so essential, why did he have to resurrect, and and why is it right. such a... I mean, you can maybe give us a couple minutes on that, I assume. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, uh, Easter, which technically means just the Sunday, and then the season which follows the Sunday, though I know that now some people use the word Easter to refer to the whole complex of Jesus going to Jerusalem and being crucified and then being raised from the dead. But technically Easter, the resurrection of Jesus on the Sunday, three days after his crucifixion, is the central point of Christian faith. Um, And it's not simply an add-on as though to make Jesus' crucifixion less unpleasant or something like that, as people sometimes talk like that. Um, The whole point of Christianity is not that it's advice, but that it's news about something that's happened. And the reason the resurrection matters is because when you see it, as the early Christians did, in the light of the whole biblical story, the the ancient Israel Israel scriptures, um, which they see as rushing together at that point, then uh, what it's all about is about the one true and living God dealing with the mess and the sin and the death of the whole of creation and launching the project of new creation from within the middle of the ongoing old creation. That's actually quite a straightforward idea within the biblical worldview. It's quite hard for people today often to get their heads around because we have translated this stuff out into being um, simply religious teaching or advice about how to go to heaven or something like that. But it's really not that. It is primarily the news that there is one God whose purposes for the world have been focused on Israel in general and then on Israel's Messiah, Jesus in particular. And the reason we know he's the Messiah is that after his shameful death, God raised him from the dead, thereby declaring that what he had achieved in his death was itself the victory which the prophets had foretold over the forces of darkness, over the powers of evil and corruption and death. So that the resurrection, um, as I say, then launches 
God's new creation, and with that, um, issues a summons to anyone and everyone uh, to come and join in, to be part of that new creation project, both in themselves and then in what they do in and for God's world. So that, that's, that's the center of it, I think. That's beautiful. It, it is, and when we're talking about the good news, I think uh, sometimes as we approach in this church season, as we approach coming out of Lent and into Good Friday and into Easter, as we're reflecting on it this week, there can sometimes be a tendency among Christian churches, and I think evangelicalism has fallen prey to this in some distinct ways, to move towards viewing the cross and the resurrection as maybe two different things, or to maybe miss seeing the beauty of each in light of the other. How do we really capture the beauty and the connection between the cross and the resurrection? How do we see them more accurately? in light of the yes, other. Yes, um, that's, that's really important, and, and you're right, and actually it's difficult. I, I've been trying to teach the New Testament for 45 or so years now, and each time you go through, you know, one is aware that it's possible so to accentuate the cross that it's almost as though everything's done there and it really doesn't matter if Jesus rises again or not, or to do it the other way, and so to accentuate the resurrection, that the only significance of the cross is that, well, he had to die in order to be raised. And clearly the New Testament doesn't do either of those things. It holds them very closely together and in very interesting and subtle mutual relation. But really the way to get to the heart of this is not to produce a theory, but to live within the narrative. And that's, of course, what good liturgy at this time of the year does, to take worshippers through the story, because as you live within the story, you feel the power of evil rushing Jesus to his death. And mm. Jesus says in Luke's Gospel, this is your hour and the power of darkness, as they come to arrest him in the garden. And then uh, you, we feel the darkness close in, so that we feel that that's what's going on with the death of Jesus, so that the resurrection of Jesus must reflect back on the fact that his death itself was for dealing with that darkness. There's a crucial verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul says in verse 17, if the Messiah has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. In other words, if Jesus didn't defeat death, then he didn't actually defeat sin on the cross either. Conversely, if he has dealt with sin on the cross, um, as Christians have always believed, um, then, of course, death itself cannot hold him any longer because it's sin basically that causes death. Sin is the invitation to the forces of darkness to come and take over and, and uh, ruin and destroy God's beautiful creation. So the two have to go very closely together. And as I say, the best way of getting that is through story and particularly the, the lived and practiced story of liturgy and prayer and worship, um, out of which then the theories can grow, but, but the worship is the real thing and, and the theories are the backup. I love that. That is beautiful. Let me ask you a question here about about that, about story and about – I love the way you describe that rushing darkness. I, if I'm not mistaken, you have some lovely grandchildren, and I, I assume – I assume that uh, the same way you would try to communicate to students in a way that uh, they need to hear, you try to communicate similarly with your grandchildren, this grand story of the resurrection, of the darkness, of the meaning of this. A lot of our listeners, our young families, are thinking about how do I communicate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, how it affects the world, their lives, to young kids. Can you tell us a little bit of maybe your own personal story? How does that look in your own home with your grandkids? because in the culture where I live, um, the family, uh, we have been a church-going family for many generations, and so you kind of grow up just knowing the story and taking it for granted, 
and then it's only as you make it your own bit by bit that some bits of it you suddenly realize just how strange they are you know I, I grew up going to church every Sunday often twice on a Sunday and prayers before bedtime and that sort of thing so that all the language of cross and resurrection and the hymns that were about that um, were just part of my mental furniture growing up. Um, uh, my, my grandchildren have that to some extent, perhaps not in the same way, because church culture is much more diverse now than it was 60 years ago. Um, but uh, I, I think I would still say that the important thing is to get them living in the story and that a good church ought to be doing that and a good home ought to be trying to do that. The trouble is, of course, if the children basically know the story, they're sort of thinking, yeah, yeah, I know, he goes to Jerusalem, he gets right. killed, and then three days later he's back again. So what you have to devise um, ways of accentuating that. In my tradition, we do things like having hot cross buns um, in Holy Week and particularly Good Friday, um, which is a way of partly saying maybe we're fasting by abstaining from meat. I mean, not many families, I think, these days do that in Holy Week, but in some traditions you would. But doing, actually doing things which affect the way you live as a family. But then on um, Easter Sunday itself, of course, celebrating in all kinds of ways. Traditionally, there are Easter eggs which now degenerates into just a, a chocoholic fest. Um, <laughs> but actually, if you go to a Greek Orthodox church for Easter, they will um, probably serve you hard-boiled eggs after the service at about mm. 4 o'clock in the morning. Um, and there's something about the egg and the sense of new life and, and new life being born from the womb of the old, of which an egg is a very ancient symbol and a very obvious mm. symbol. But also about light, that um, one of the things we used to do when I was in Durham um, was to... to keep the Easter festivities very early in the morning when it's still dark and you come into church with a single candle and then somebody shouts, Alleluia, Christ is risen and yeah. you all respond and then you light your candles from that central candle and then the procession goes on into church with everybody holding their own candle so there's a sense that the central event of the gospel um, has happened once and for all and we all as individuals join in with that and become part part of that single event, uh, even though each of us then carries our own candle, and so on. So there's many, many festivities like this. I've suggested in one of my books, depending entirely on your family and how old they are and so on, um, actually serving champagne for breakfast for the first week of, East, of the Easter season. <laughs> and that. I know some churches have actually picked that up, having Easter celebrations. Another thing which really bothers me is that we Western Christians uh, uh, often really keep this um, news to ourselves. Mm. And in the early church, I think they did festivals out on the street. When Paul says celebrate and rejoice, this isn't something which he means just feel very happy in your heart or just uh, sing slightly louder hymns in private. I think he wants them to get out on the street and to be having a procession That's and great. a celebration of yeah. the fact that there is this person, Jesus, who is now installed as the Lord of the world and that he's alive and that he's loving and forgiving yes. and active in the world. Um, and I think if we, if we don't do these things, if we we retreat back into our own private space, our own private mental and emotional space, then the danger is we, we don't take seriously the actual narrative cosmic dimensions of all this. So there are many different ways of doing this, and different cultures will appropriate this differently. 
I think we have a lot to learn from, actually, from the Eastern traditions that I've meant, mentioned already, the, the Orthodox churches, who have suff often suffered greatly over the last centuries. And when you see those Orthodox churches doing Easter, my goodness, they really go for it, yeah. in a way which makes our usual Western celebrations look rather tame. Yeah. Anyway, that's, that's just well, for starters. Well, Dr. Wright, I would just say, I am uh, born and raised in the Southern Baptist Convention, and I will tell you that you are making a persuasive case when you're talking about hot cross buns and champagne on Easter that I would convert to Anglicanism for those things. <laughs> so, so you are you are you are selling you are uh, just you are selling me on the celebratory nature of Easter. I'm thinking I got to go from here, stock up on some champagne and some cinnamon rolls, and celebrate over the next few days. So you're provoking that in me. Um, <laughs> Dr. Wright, uh, you know, you spent some time there talking about what it's like to maybe recapture the wonder of Easter, especially for those who have almost been, I mean, maybe this is a way you could put it, inoculated to the story a bit. Um, yeah, but, yeah. but swinging the other direction, and you, and you sort of touched on this, but, you know, just living in an increasingly differentiated society where now, you know, this story is maybe one amongst many others that are offered, um, you know, uh, 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 really as a worldview. Um, how, how does the belief in the resurrection differentiate Christianity from other religions or other worldviews? Well, of course, in the early church, it was like that right across um, the, the Mediterranean world. That's um, right. The uh, earliest Christians were Jews, but um, they very quickly went out from um, the Jewish enclaves and communities into the wider world, and within 10 years or so, you've got thriving Gentile churches, um, not only in Antioch in Syria, but then in Turkey, in Egypt, and uh, obviously in Rome eventually, well, quite soon, um, all around the Greek world. And uh, in each of those places, if you'd walked out on the street, there's more gods than you can shake a stick at. There's gods and goddesses for everything. And particularly, there's the imperial um, uh, religion, the worship of Caesar and Rome, which was the fastest growing religion in the world where St. Paul went traveling. So early Christianity was born into uh, a, a world where the claims that the Christians made were seen as one among many, and then the Christians were saying, actually, no, this is the only one, this is the true one. So it, that, that, that's something that people just weren't used to, the idea that religions made exclusive claims. That was shocking and, and scandalous and, and crazy, um, and Paul knew that perfectly well. But as far as he was concerned, as he says in First Corinthians, for us there is one God the Father and one Lord Jesus Christ, and that's it, and they stand over against all the gods and goddesses of the, of the pagan pantheon. And when you analyze the different competing worldviews in our world today, then again and again you can see that they are locatable within that map of, of pagan gods and goddesses. They all accentuate this or that or the other. Now, some of them, of course, are much more subtle than that. The other great monotheistic religions, Judaism and Islam. But again, we have a problem because we see these things as religions, which uh, in the ancient world, a religion wasn't separate from the rest of life. It was to do with the whole of life. Right. And all of life was folded together within that uh, that category so that we in the modern west have, have really got hard work to get back into the mindset of um well actually of most of the human race except for the modern west namely that what you believe about god or the gods does in fact affect everything else you do so that brings me around to the real answer to your question that what you see on the street 
uh, as Christians practice their faith, and remember that in the ancient world there's no such thing as private life. The only people who have privacy in the ancient world are the very rich or the very royal, and everyone else does what they do in the, the total public gaze. And people see at once that these Christians are behaving differently. They, they are uh, gentle, they are kind, they are loving, they are outgoing, they believe in, in medicine, in, in taking health to places where it's needed, they believe in education, even if people can't afford it. They are doing, they particularly believe that all humans, not least women and children, are really valuable in themselves, which many, many people in the ancient world, and sadly many in the modern world, don't believe. So the way that Christians respond to the fact that Jesus is Lord and that he's alive from the dead, this is what makes all the difference. And the arguments that people use, you know, I've got this worldview, you've got that worldview, they are the backup for what happens when people say, how come you guys are so different? Or why don't you join in with our festivities where we all get drunk and go off and have an orgy? And the Christians are laughed at because they won't do that stuff. And they say, well, actually, we have this extraordinary Lord who we follow, and he has given us a new quality of life. And then comes the theology. Well, how? And how does that work? And what are these funny scriptures you're talking about and so on? But it's the, it's the way of life, the distinctive way of life that makes the difference in the first instance. And, and Dr. Wright, that's what's so compelling um, for us about your vision of the resurrection and how you've communicated that is this, that you're trying to stress the cosmic implications, of the, all, the whole life implications of the resurrection. This show is a show called Culture Matters that is really trying to target how the Christian faith impacts all of life. And there's this great quote uh, from you and Surprised by Hope, and you say this, you say, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. Just what do you mean by that? How does that, how does the resurrection bear weight on the way we live our lives today from our worship to our mission? How are we, how is the resurrection colonizing earth with the life of heaven? Yeah. Part of our difficulty here is that for the last 250 years or so, the Western world, America, Europe particularly, plus offshoots like Australia and New Zealand, has been living on the belief that if there is a heaven, it's a long way away, and there's no hotline between that and uh, Earth. In other words, this is the ancient philosophy called Epicureanism, or, or its junior cousin Deism, which was very popular in the 18th century and still is lingering around. Um, that is to say, if there are gods, or if there is a god, he or they, they're a long way away, they don't get involved, um, our world just makes itself, it runs on its own steam, it, it just transforms itself itself by natural processes. Um, this is actually what, what produces evolutionism, not biological evolution, which is a perfectly respectable theory about biological origins, but evolutionism, which says that um, this uh, the world has to make itself because there is no intervening God. And that, that's a whole other debate. So anyway, we, we get stuck in this. And so if we think of heaven colonizing earth, that seems to us a category mistake. Um, just like it seems to us a category mistake to think of the risen body of Jesus ascending to heaven, because we're basically all Platonists at heart. It's this odd mixture of Platonism and Epicureanism where um, the, the, the Western world thinks, well, if there is a God, then this God must be pure spirit so it must have nothing to do with the material world. So if there's anyone in heaven, uh, such a being must be 
purely spiritual and not in any sense physical uh, or embodied. And all of this that I've just described shows how far away we are from the Jewish worldview as throughout Scripture, where heaven and earth are designed for one another. Heaven and earth are supposed to be the interlocking spheres of God's good creation. So That's good. going all the way back to Genesis 1. And the great biblical symbol for this is the temple, the temple as the place where heaven and earth come together, yes. where God comes to meet with his people. That's why the temple is so vital and central in Jewish culture, in Jewish stories, in Jewish worship, etc., um, and why it was such a, such a tragedy for the Jews when the temple was destroyed in AD 70. But in the New Testament, what we see is that the language and imagery of the temple is then focused on Jesus and the Spirit, and that Jesus and the Spirit somehow catch up that whole temple theme and say, no, this is where heaven and earth come together, that heaven and earth have come together in Jesus, heaven and earth do come together by the Spirit. And those who believe in Jesus, who are joined to his project, to him personally, are energized by the Spirit so that we are designed to be heaven and earth overlapping creatures. And so that what we do is supposed to be, and what we say is supposed to be, a means of joining heaven and earth together, not just as a one-off, not sort of on Sundays or when we say our prayers each day or whatever, but in our, in our whole lives. We, this is why Paul commands people to pray constantly, that the constant prayer, uh, the prayer of the heart, as in, again, some Eastern traditions, um, the, the, not just a sort of semi-background chatter with God, but a sort of deep sense of of resting in the presence of God throughout the day. Um, th this is a way of being heaven and earth people. Of course it's difficult. Of course it's costly. Of course it's, it's hard to figure out. We get it wrong. We make mistakes. We get arrogant or fearful or whatever. But actually this is the New Testament vision of what it means to live as a Christian. And if we're doing that then the things that we're called to do, whether it's in my case writing books and articles and things, or whether it's in the case of people like yourself thinking about culture. Um, here in St. Andrews, we have an Institute for Theology, Imagination, and the Arts, and that's specifically because the imagination is part of being genuinely human, and it's one of the parts where the light really shines through. The, 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 the coming together of heaven and earth can really happen and can open up people, other people's imaginations so that they get a glimpse of this as well. So that in all these ways, um, Paul says in Philippians 3, uh, we are uh, a colony of heaven. And that doesn't mean, so we're just an outpost and then we'll go back there one day. It means rather that heaven is taking over the world and we're supposed to be part of the advance guard of that. And if that doesn't look promising or likely, then we need to do some hard thinking about how our church life and our personal lives need to be reformed so that it does become thinkable and actual. Anyway, I could go on about this all day, but you see where I'm coming from. Yes, sir. And I, I, this concept of heaven and earth people, I think, is so profound in how um, we exist in this world right now as this intersection, kind of communicating, mediating, so to speak, this 
reality that is present and that is secured for us in the resurrection. I, I'd love to just ask you kind of in closing here, over the last couple of weeks, and, and while we, we certainly couldn't just focus to the last couple of weeks, but the last couple of weeks have certainly been a stark reminder of the darkness creeping in the world. You mentioned Egypt and Syria earlier in the interview, the bombings in Syria, the recent attack on Coptic churches yet again on Palm Sunday. How do you personally press into the hope of Easter and the resurrection in the midst of what can sometimes seem to be overwhelming darkness in our lives and the life of the world. How, how do you commend this to the men and women that you've shepherded of pressing into right, this right. heaven and earth people, this resurrection hope in the midst of what can sometimes feel like enveloping darkness? How do we, how do we cling yeah. to that, Dr. Wright? That's absolutely right. I think the place to start is with the New Testament itself, which combines on page after page the celebration of what has already happened through the resurrection of Jesus and the gift of the Spirit and the uh, warning about the way things still are in the world. I think particularly of the letters of the Ephesians, where in the first chapter you have this amazing vision of heaven and earth coming together, of Jesus already enthroned in the heavenlies, and of us who belong to Jesus already there with him, already part of his risen, ascended life in a way which is, is actually hard for us to envisage, as I say, because of our contemporary worldviews. But Ephesians celebrates that gloriously. And then right at the end of the letter, after some very bracing ethical instructions, which make most people suck in their teeth and say, oh my goodness, we've got some work to do here. Yeah. Then the end of it is, now look, there's a battle on. There is a, a, a wrestling match, not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness. In other words, making those claims about Jesus being the living and ascended one actually precipitates you into um, the, the, the different stages of what is really the last battle, the great final battle in which, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. Jesus is already reigning, but he sends out the church in the world to implement his reign, and here's the scary bit, which we in the West are not good at, one of the ways in which that reign has always been implicated, put into practice, is through the suffering of Jesus' people. Paul mm. says we suffer with him that we may also be glorified That's with right. him. And for me, the profoundest part of that, as in Romans 8, is when Paul says that the Spirit groans within us as we groan in prayer within the suffering of the world. So that when I think of my Christian brothers and sisters in Egypt at the moment and places like that, I think of people who are at the place where the world is in pain and they are in prayer where the world is in pain in order that God the Spirit may come to that place and that God groans. I sometimes think that the Spirit is there rather like Jesus on the cross saying, my God, my God, why did you abandon me? Hmm. This is part of the mystery of Trinitarian faith, that God comes to the heart of the darkness of the world so that the victory over darkness won by Jesus on the cross may then be implemented. And that has been so throughout church history. And those of us who are not presently called to suffer, or not very much, need to stand in conscious solidarity, prayerful solidarity, with those of our brothers and sisters in places like that. But that's how it works. The victory has been won. Jesus is already reigning. But the New Testament, at the very moment when it makes that claim, also says, right, so if you're signed on for this, battle is joined, expect to suffer, and somewhere around the world, 
the church will be suffering and we all have to stand together at that point in the faith and hope and sure and actually sheer joy because often that's where you find the joy paradoxically among communities that are called to suffer because they know the presence and the love of jesus in the midst of that and often that puts the rest of us to shame that's good that that is so good and one of the things i mean as much as we talk about um culture here we do also talk about suffering what it means to live as a christian and in this in this world the world that you just described the world that um that like you said uh exists alongside uh bombings and and just horrible tragedy um but but thinking somewhat about uh uh uh, us like you've said who maybe are, are living in places where the suffering isn't the same uh or maybe not to that degree at least the visible church isn't suffering the same way um but is there a way that we can still have an eternal perspective uh, about the things we are doing now? So here's here's sort of what I'm asking. And so I think um, some Christians view cultural renewal and engagement as nothing more than, I don't know, like a picture of the kingdom to come, right? Uh, but is there something more to it? it uh, does the way that we live our lives today um, from you were talking about the the institute you have there at St Andrews, is there something about doing art, doing law, education, whatever it might be, uh, that has an eternal component, that has a transcendent component? Um, yeah, yeah. I think part of the point is that we humans readily forget that our vocation as humans is to be image bearers, which, as many Old Testament scholars have argued now, is not that we reflect God back to God, but that we reflect God out into the world. That is the human vocation. Um, Adam and Eve are told, be fruitful and multiply and look after the garden and name the animals and all of that. And that seems to be part of this image-bearing vocation. And many scholars have said as well that humans are like the image which somebody puts in a temple. If in the ancient world you build a temple to a god, the last thing that you put into it is the image so that the presence of the god may be there in the wider community and the worship of that wider community can be reflected back to the god. Now, when you say that God made heaven and earth as this great temple and put us humans in the middle of it, then clearly the crucial thing about being human is that we have a vocation. It isn't just that God has put us there to give us a moral test to see if, if we'll measure up to his rather exacting standards. That's part of it, because um, obviously God wants us to reflect his glory and his love into the world, and, and we have to be conscious and, and intentional about that. But it goes so much wider than that, and so God gifts human beings with many, many different and um, diverse giftings for his own glory, to bring his love and his wisdom and his creativity and his power to bear upon the world, and then to to draw that all back to himself in worship. So there's this constant rhythm of, of worship, and then whether you call it witness or service or work for God's glory in the world, And I think only when the church recaptures that, and when we as individuals recapture that, uh, will we actually get away from being just stuck in, oh dear, am I good enough for God, and if not, then what? You know, yes, morals matter, behavior matters, but they matter as part of that much larger whole, the Easter whole, the Pentecost whole, the, the whole that says God made this beautiful world, and he's called us to be not just glances at 
God's beauty out of a window, as it were, but people who make more beauty because God wants us in reflecting his image to be ourselves co-creators. And that's one of the wonderful things about being either in families or in artwork or in writing or in industry, whatever it is. That's who we're supposed to be, sharers with God in his project. Uh, and, and that's part of the human vocation, which, as Paul says, is uh, renewed in Christ and by the Spirit. That is beautiful. Dr. Wright, thank you. Man, all of your answers for me today, and I'm sure for many of our listeners, have painted a more beautiful picture of our Savior, the implications for our lives, and even understanding our world today. I can't thank you enough for your time thank and you. your, and you your intellect. Much. May I just ask you one question as we finish? Um, do you know or have you mentioned or are you going to mention on your podcast, because I know my colleagues would ask me to mention this, the, the um, uh, online courses that I've been doing. Oh, could you uh, tell us a little bit about them? That would be great. Well, it's at um, www.ntwriteonline.org. And there are several exegetical courses. There's uh, courses on, on Romans, on Galatians, on Ephesians, on various other passages. There's uh, a recent course on the book, The Day the Revolution Began. There's a course based on my resurrection, big resurrection book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, um, and several others. And uh, there are different ways that groups or individuals can access them. But uh, we've, we've, they've been going now for a year, 18 months, I think, and we've got... Oh, 7,000 plus students in over 100 wow. countries. So it's been really an exciting project. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. We would have missed Great. that. So that for all our listeners, if you want to hear more from N.T. Wright uh, outside his books, which you can pick up, you can go check out that website that he just listed. And we'll list that in the show notes as well. So thank you, Dr. Wright. Thank you so much thank for the time today. Thank you very much. It's very good to talk. Thank you, sir. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If there's anything you heard on the show today that you'd like to know more about, you can find details on our website, tbcresources.net. On our next episode, we're going to have a conversation with Andy Crouch about technology and the family. We will see you next time. God bless. Okay, real? You're listening to Culture Matters, a podcast of the village. Thanks, Adam. <laughs> Little echo. <laughs> okay.